E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Larry Stone of Lingua Franca, the winery in Oregon, and also LS Vineyards, his property there as well. Hello, sir. How are you? Fine. Good to see you. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm pleased to be back. So the last time you were here, we talked a lot about um, growing up and then your academic career and then moving into restaurants and working as a sommelier when there really weren't that many around and then kind of progressing on a changing scene from the 70s and the 80s. But one of the things we didn't talk a lot about is how you also got involved with uh, winemaking itself. Instead of just serving wine in restaurants, you really decided to be hands-on and one of the first examples of a sommelier who was like, ah, oh, you know, I also want to have my own wine project, at least an American sommelier. Yeah, I did that starting in uh, 93. With, uh, when I moved to California, I, uh, I really loved working with vineyards. In fact, when I started to explore what I could do, I thought I'd, I, I realized that I could buy grapes and I could make wine in a custom crush situation at another winery and have a good winemaker kind of oversee what I was doing and, and help me. But it basically be my decisions when to pick and and buy the fruit where to get them and source them and and that evolved into Cerritas. And I made the wines for a while, uh first at Bouchain, for early days at Bouchain, and then at Kathy Corison's place, and then finally at the Coppola winery. And these wines, the Cerita wines, were pretty good. I mean, I had very good sources. I think the Cabernet Franc source I had was really great, and I was able to make some excellent Cabernet Franc. The Merlot was excellent too, but uh it was a little bit more structured than the critics wanted. That's what I liked about it. Yeah, I, me too. I thought it was more, I wanted to make it more Santamillion like, but the critics for uh, American Merlot often didn't get it. They said, why is it so tannic now? I said, because it's structured to be kind of like a Cabernet Bordeaux kind of wine, even though it's Merlot. And it aged very nicely. In fact, we still have a few cases left, a few bottles of this and that from the very earliest vintage. The 97 was the first vintage I had for uh, Sarita Cab Franc, and I still have a few bottles left, and they're really good. And I, I was proud of what I did. It was definitely baby steps. You know, it was my first winemaking project, and I had to stand my own ground because Kathy Corson especially had her own ideas, and mine were a little different. And uh, But she's a, a great person, and I, I was happy that I could be in her winery for quite a few years. And then uh, Scott McLeod at Coppola was help, very helpful. And there was a woman, Tondi Bolkin, there as an enologist. She was amazing. And they, were, they taught me an awful lot. I mean, to work with them 
So I think the whole thing, you know, is is just a great community. I think people understand how great a community Napa is, as well as Oregon. Oregon is a great wine community. Napa is a great wine community. In the new world, you know, these regions are successful because all the growers get together and decide to help each other. And there may be competition, you know, in the marketplace because they they all feel like they have their wine should be best. There's that pride of ownership, but they still are know fundamentally that they're all they're one region and they all have to hang together. A newcomer coming in, they they know that that person should be nurtured if they believe that that person has something to give. So what did you pick up from Kathy Corson and Scott McLeod? I mean, what were some of the things along the way that you said, huh, huh, I, I didn't know? Well, I think from Kathy, I, I understood from her fundamentally how she had a, a plan for her wines and she stuck to them. Didn't matter what people said. She was very confident in what she did. But she wasn't rewarded for her style of wine because it went counter to what the major critics that were influential wanted from California Cabernet. And she said, no, I'm making this kind of wine. And she stuck to it. And I think now there's an appreciation for what she did, which is great for her. But on the other hand, uh, I, I'm not an inflexible person. So my personality and my style are different. I'm more experimental I like to think, well, can I make it better? Can I, if I change things, will it be better? She's the kind of person that says, this is what I like, this is the way I want to do it, and that's the end of the story, which is commendable. Like another person I can think of, Jim Clendenin, I admire him greatly. He stuck by his guns, and I, his wines were always really good, and, and they were not necessarily fashionable either. But he went out and he sold them. He, he, he pushed them, and he said, look, these are good wines, and he stood behind them. He had the courage to do that. And he was right. They were good wines, and just as her wines are good, but uh, maybe not in the in the trend. And for me, that taught me that you know, when I made my Merlot, for example, it was it was also uh, excoriatingly you know given bad scores by some critics. It was really you know wretched. But and I was all upset about it. And then uh, one of my friends and a woman who used to work for me, Sarah Floyd, I, t- I was complaining to her. I said, oh, look what I got. This score is terrible. It's a great wine. They just don't understand it. And she said, get over it. Everybody gets a bad score. Do you like the wine? Yeah. And the wine is good. So that's it. End of story. You, do, do you feel ashamed of it? No. So I said, oh, okay. All right. So I learned a lot from making those wines that were not fashionable. And I, I did them my own way. But when I, with Scott McLeod and Tondi, that was a whole other world because they were highly trained. Scott was the head of his class at Davis, and he he was responsible at that time for a lot of wine for, you know, uh, for growing Coppola from 5,000 cases to whatever it is today. And uh, Tondi was uh, trained as a physician at first, but she, like her family, wanted her to be because she came from a family of surgeons and physicians. And she decided that she didn't want to pursue that career, and she went into biochemistry and wound up doing enology. And her knowledge of science was so deep and profound. She did a lot of research in phenolics and how to analyze phenolics uh, very quickly, because the turnaround for these analyses used to take eight hours to two days. And by that time, it was too late to really have the, be useful. The information that you gleaned from it was too late to change your fermentation regimen, for example. So she developed protocols that were very quick and could tell you the profile of the phenolics, whether it was whether the wine was absorbing too much tannin or too little tannin, or whether it was, you know, what kind of tannins they were. And it could all happen within four hours. 
And at that point, you could actually change your fermentation temperatures. You could pull the skins off. You could whatever do whatever you felt you needed to do to let the wine get to a better balance within the structure of the acid and the tannins and the fruit. So I learned a lot from her. That was amazing. That was a very scientific point of view. And it was something that I felt was maybe a little extreme at one point, but it was actually very useful to have. It was extremely useful. And it made me look at wines in a very different way than I had before. It's something I wouldn't use necessarily for Pinot Noir. It's a different, a different animal, and what we're doing is very different. But with wines that can be too tannic, like Cabernet can quickly get too tannic, or Syrahs, that's very useful information. And it, uh, it really, I think, it was very, very, very educational for me in a way that I never expected it to be. Have there been other really big revelations like that, either from tasting wine regularly at the restaurant or from making wine or the interaction of those two things? Well, I, I think, you know, my tasting of wine and the technical aspect, it's like two different things. Like if you uh, get into a cab, for example, your experience of the drive will be very different from that of the driver's. So you, if the driver's confident and he seems to know where he's going, you start looking at your phone, you start looking around at the scenery and everything seems fine. You may not notice that he, he's not in the fastest lane. He, he could have been in the next lane over, but he's getting you to the right place and it's smooth and it's safe and uh, that you enjoy the ride. But the driver may have seen the cat like coming at the car and he had to put on the brakes early to avoid hitting it. He, he may have seen the pedestrian on their iPhone and not noticing that they had, were crossing against a red light. So his experience is different. And that's the same thing with making wine and tasting wine. For me, making wine is like when I present a wine that I've been responsible for, whether I made it or whether I'm part of the team that made it. I know every flaw. I know what it took to get that wine to the way it tastes today. And I'm always sensitive to those things in a way that's much higher, uh, a much higher sensitivity than anyone else in the room, because they might not even taste the things I'm looking for them to taste in fear, because, oh, did I do it right? Was it, what, did we correct that? Did we fix that? Is that thing that we didn't expect going to show today or not, you know, and, and what do I, you know, what do I say, you know, because, and, and then everybody tastes the wine and they go, oh, this is great. It's like, I learned this very early on from my mother, actually, because my mother taught me how to cook. And we, we'd all enjoy her food enormously. She was like the best cook in the family. And we'd, we'd say, oh, this is delicious. And she said, no, I, the, the stock was, had too much carrot. It got too sweet. Or there's too much salt in this. It needed a little more acid. Then you would smell it and you taste it and you go like, oh, yeah, I wish you hadn't told me that. Because to me, I was perfectly satisfied with it until you said that. But now I see what you mean, you know. So, but it taught me that perception sometimes of the person enjoying it or experiencing it is very different from the perception of the person making it. So there's not really a lot of crossover. And I, I don't, I'm, there shouldn't be. I think that's the biggest problem that winemakers and winery people have is that when they present the wine, they're so willing to talk about all the flaws that people, ta that's what they taste. If they would just let people taste it and give them their opinion, they'd probably find that it's a much more satisfactory experience for everyone. <laughs> I had to teach people that too. I learned that pretty early on when I was making wines. So there may be some, uh, I think the biggest thing was Brett. So, you know, uh, wineries in California are, are fearful about the slightest scent of Brett. And there are critics who, if they smell it, even if it's a minor or maybe a, an integral and beautiful part of a wine, they will totally destroy the wine in a score. Uh, but you give it to the average consumer, let's say in LA, who's used to like drinking French wine or in New York, and they'll find the Brett in a Cabernet to be a positive by 10 points. You know, they'll, they'll say, this is French. This is like Bordeaux. I, I love this wine. And they'll taste the fruitier 
cleaner California wines, and they'll say they're kind of boring. So it's a matter of what your experience background is. And so there's nothing as, there's really nothing that I would call a wine flaw. There's just a matter of what you tolerate and what's your expectation. So if you drink a lot of Rhone, Northern Rhone wines that have tons of bread, I mean, almost all of them, and it's a great part of the signature of those wines for identifying them in a blind tasting versus California Syrah, for example, then uh, you go, I like that, and that's what you appreciate, and you miss that when you taste other versions outside their own. And if you come from that background and you taste a California Cabernet that's just fruity and clean, might have great structure, you're still not as impressed as when you taste it with a little bread. And that's hard for people to understand. And it's like, I, I, it's really hard for people to understand how taste can be different from one person to another. And it has to do with their background and their expectations for what a good wine is. I mean, there seem to be a lot of wine fashions going on. So, you know, it's once it's one year, it's Gruner Veltliner this year. It's uh, next year, it's Falangina this year. It's Chenin Blanc. Uh, and I think we shouldn't discount that. I'm not dissing that. I think wine is also fashion because people kind of collectively get excited about different regions. But now it's the, it's, it's the Loire and it's the Jura and it's colder climate. Maybe it'll be the, uh, the Alps, you know, Alpine wines too are coming in. Uh, and I think that's great for those places to get some attention. I like those wines. But I also know from my own experience, because that was my background, was that's what I grew up with. Uh, I know that not everybody can accept those wines, and we shouldn't look down on them. If they like, you know, if they like a, a, Cal, a nice, buttery California Chardonnay, that's fine. I have, a, I have actually an investor in Lingua Franca who asked if he could buy the Chardonnay. And I said, what kind of Chardonnay do you like? And he goes, I was hoping he'd say white burgundy. <laughs> but he said, oh, I like Rombauer. I like, you know, I like, uh, you know, cake bread. I like, you know, and I go like, okay, I think you should buy those and try the Pinots. <laughs> try our Pinots. So, you know, but I didn't, and I, I said, you know, it's not, no offense. It's just, we don't make that kind of wine. And it's not that my wine is better because it obviously for most people, it wouldn't be necessarily better. It would be, too uh, dry or too, you know, not oaky enough or whatever. They're drinking it. I'm not. They have to please themselves. I liked your Chardonnay. The Sisters 15 was like really good. Thank I, you. In my opinion. But I also like that really structured Merlot. That's the one I bought from you. It was the really structured one that got the bad scores. So Yeah, yeah. When well, we first thank you. met, I bought that wine. So yeah. it seems that I'm in, you know, I'm maybe not in the, the regular crowd. No, there. well, I, you know, I knew that sommeliers would appreciate it. But, you know, we're a special group. I think that's one thing somebody should recognize as well. It's not their palate that rules, it's the guests. And then also, we're a special privileged group. We get to taste the greatest wines in the world. We live like billionaires in terms of what we drink. And our access to the producers is greater than that for any billionaire because the, the growers don't care if you have money. They can sell our wine. They want people who appreciate what they do, and we do. And so we have great privilege, and we're, it's such a great profession to be in because of that. If you like wine, it's, there's no other profession because no one has the access, no one has the, gets the exposure. Following up with that, are there specific bottles that you've thought in hindsight have affected your winemaking? Like you've had access to drink some amazing wines, especially because you started your career at a time when some of the real benchmarks of the world were very cheap. And mm -hmm. you've seen a lot of shift in the market and consumer taste. So do you remember certain moments where you said, huh, this wine is, has actually given me access to think differently about my own wines or what I want to do? I think that my taste was formed probably by my early experiences in wine when I was still pretty much a child. 
and drinking great Rieslings and drinking great Loire Valley wines. I also think I, it was informed by the Rhone. My uncle, I had an uncle, my father's brother was in the Austrian, he was an Austrian refugee. He wound up trapped in France and joined the French underground. He was, uh, he was a, a rather important spy. Actually, there's a book written, uh, University of Maryland Press published his biography. The historian said he was one of the six most important spies sending information on, on Normandy in the Second World War. So uh, he wound up uh, in the Rhone at the end. He was captured, he escaped, and he wound up uh, walking to the Rhone from Brittany. And uh, he joined the underground there as a partisan instead of as being as a spy. And he, uh, as a result, he liberated Ten L'Hermitage. He, he liberated the Northern Rhone before the Free French Forces under de Gaulle came up. And uh, so as a result, he had a lot of friends there who fought with him and they sent him wine. So he had a lot of Rhone wines in his cellar. And as a result, I grew up with great Rhone wines. And when I went to buy wines, I wanted to see what, well, let my, my uncle had this wine. Let me try this other wine. And, you know, fortunately, Jabouille Hermitage La Chapelle was like $17 a bottle when I was buying it in the 70s. And I could afford to pay, you know, save up for it and maybe buy one bottle every two or three months. And, uh, and it was really great wine. And, you know, I knew it was great, but I, you know, I didn't realize how great it was, you know, for a, a long time after that. But those wines really impressed me. Chave Hermitage and, and, uh, and Jaboulet Hermitage La Chapelle. And also wines from the Southern Rhone a little bit, but to a lesser extent, you know, and I was able to drink the first Gigal uh, La Turque wines, La Moulinus came out in the 61. That was a little early, but I was able to drink those. They were a little bit available. And certainly the Code Bruno Blonde was probably my mainstay. So those were very influential in my palate. And so that's why I also, even though I've come to understand that bread is a problem, it's also something that can be a positive. Uh, the other things that influenced me, I think, were the Pinots that I drank when I went to Burgundy, Dominique Lafon's father's wines. It was Rene Lafon's Merceau's. I was able to get those when I was starting off to be a sommelier, because I didn't know about them really before then, they would have been too expensive for my family to buy. But I, when I was a sommelier, they were pretty reasonable still for what I was serving in a Four Seasons restaurant. And I thought, these are amazing wines and I have to buy them and I'd look for them. And they'd actually, believe it or not, go on sale because they couldn't be sold in stores because no one knew what they were. And I would, look, I would, especially in California, there was a glut of them in California. There wasn't very much in Washington state. So I kind of had to do with what I bought for the restaurant. But my, when I went down to California, my girlfriend, now my wife uh, of many years, when she went to visit her grandmother, I would go to the stores in the region. I wasn't allowed to, the grandmother wasn't allowed to know about me. So I, I, I dropped her off and then I'd go to my cousin's house. But on the way to my cousin's house in, in L.A., I'd go through all the the wine shops I, I could look up between San Bernardino and Los Angeles, and I'd stop to see if they'd have any Lafon wines. And there was always Volnay. Volnay was always on sale. It was great. It was great wine, but it was very old style, much different than Dominique's Volnay's. Dominique's Volnay's are more are fresher. The father's wines are a little more, they were more whiny. They were a little more uh, vinous in their, even when they were young. And the Chardonnay's, the Merceau's, were much riper, actually, in flavor profile than Dominique's. 
Sometimes they had protein issues. There were some vintages that actually had a little protein deposit, but they were brilliant wines. I loved them, and especially when they had protein because then people didn't know what to do with them. They thought something was wrong because there might have been a little white speck, and it was just maybe one vintage, but I, I bought a lot of that one because it was available. And uh, that really informed my palate for Burgundy a lot, and I loved those wines so much. I remember serving Gregory Peck. He wanted to have a Marquis de la Guiche Montrachet, and I said, I have a 78 Lafont Montrachet, you should try this, you know. I thought, this is, this is going to be, blow him away. He, he tasted it, and he said, he said, oh, it's good. Can I have a bottle of La Guiche, please? <laughs> and he gave me half the bottle of the La Fon. I go like, yes, okay. <laughs> but, uh, no, that's, that tells you about taste. I, and nothing wrong with Marquis de La Guiche. He, just, he was used to that profile. That was his favorite, and that was that. But... But uh, there was a lot, a lot of different winemaking back then, and under also even Rouleau. I loved Rouleau and uh, making great wines, but also different than Jean-Marc. So you described earlier how you went from making the wines of Cerrito with Kathy Corson to Scott McLeod, and that kind of followed how you went to work for Nibam Coppola, and I assume that that was why. Well, no, actually, uh, the, the Coppola thing went way back to the beginning of the Rubicon restaurant, when we when we named Rubicon Restaurant, uh, we were talking about names, and it took us like a year. We were talking for six months every day about naming the restaurant. What are we going to name it? And we came up with hundreds of names. I, I had been to Coppola the previous year with Tony Soder, who was had just begun to be the consulting winemaker, and I went around with Tony, and, uh, and that included Kathy Corson back then. This is 1991 or something. We went and we went to. Uh, the old Inglenook Winery, it's, it's Francis Ford Coppola's place, you know. And so I got to taste the wines he was responsible for. And uh would have been like the 89 and 90 vintage, I think. The 89, I, I think he, he finished 89, he made the 90, 91. They were both in barrel at that time. And it was, a, it was back in the carriage house where he had his art department later. It was very cramped and they had barrels stacked on top of each other, the ceiling and and uh, old uh, Italian at uh, Fooder, too. They had some of that because that, Francis wanted to kind of continue the tradition that John Daniel Jr. had. And the main thing was that he had his uh, studio. He had an editing studio above that. And if the studio was editing a film, sometimes they had to stop production. They had to stop, you know, harvest. <laughs> 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 so... It was nice when he moved out of there, but it was it was pretty great. And I, but the wines were incredible. Tony did a great job, and I also you know I knew Andre Telechev. I was able to taste with him, and uh, you know when he's blending wines, I worked with him a little bit, not as an employee, but just as like a witness or something, or helping him out in the tasting uh, at uh, Chateau Saint Michel when it was still when I was still in Seattle, and uh, so I loved I loved his wines a lot, and I was really happy that uh, Francis had hired him to make the wines. But then when Tony took over, the wines were a little more vibrant and a little fresher and a little more modern uh, and in a good way. So that was when uh, the year next year when Drew said, you're always talking about Rubicon. I was talking about, I was saying, this Rubicon's a great estate. It's going to come back. You know, Francis is going to put money into it. I, I had no connection with Francis or anything. I was just so impressed with what Tony was done. And I loved that vineyard. I knew that as an historic vineyard from my childhood. And... Um, so Drew said, why not call it Rubicon? And I go like, Rubicon? Yeah, crossing the Rubicon. We're all coming from different cities. I'm coming from Chicago. You're coming from New York. We're all, t uh, Tracy is from, you know, is coming from Southern California at this point. And uh, 
so we're all outsiders and everybody's telling us we don't understand San Francisco. So we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll fail. I think we should come and just call this Rubicon. So there's that element to it. And then it's also the wine. And I said, but if we do that, we have to ask Francis if he'll sell us verticals of all the wines he's made. And so what happened was Francis became a partner in the project and we got the, you know, the vertical and, and, uh, so he his you know, uh, Zoetrope Studios is only like three blocks away from Rubicon restaurant where it was. And so he'd come in frequently and ask me questions and ask me to give him wines. So that was the beginning of the process. And then he, uh, he asked me for advice on purchasing the vineyard next door and the chateau, the Inglenook Chateau. And he didn't have that, that still belonged to other people. And then the brand was sold, Inglenook brand was sold. And so they were putting up the chateau and the vineyards for sale. So Francis had an option to buy it. And he asked me what I thought. And I said, you should buy it. It'll never, you know, you won't have this opportunity again. It's yours. And, you know, it's not that expensive considering what is the value of reuniting this estate. And so I'm sure he had other voices saying the same thing. And he, he bought it. And then uh, he asked me to be on the board of directors of his company a couple of years later. He used me for marketing and sales. And then a few years after that, he asked me to be the, the general manager of the winery or the Giron. What did he used to order at Rubicon? Like wine-wise, what did Francis Ford Coppola like to drink? He liked hearty wines. And uh, in fact, he made a wine with his father that was one of Carmine, which was one of, it's like the first year they were at the estate and it called it Vino Forte, strong wine. And it was strong wine. And uh, the family used to tease him that they could use, they could either drink it or use it for polishing brass. And they said they'd rather see it being used for polishing brass. And they tried to give it away once and it was rejected by <laughs> the veterans home, I think, in Yountville. But it was, it actually, to his credit, it actually, after about 10 years or more, or like not 10 years, but let's say five, six years more after we opened the restaurant, it finally turned around. But this wine was made in 1978 and we're talking about 1996 or seven. But it, it actually did it softened up. It was actually really nice. And it, by then, the family was kind of done with it. But I said, oh, you should really go back and try it. And Francis did, and he loved it. But it was, it was uh, pretty powerful. He likes those. Uh, he's, not a, he's, he's not a person to go for. He likes Cabernet. I, he, the other wines he'll try, and he'll appreciate them, but it's not what he would normally prefer drinking. Because I remember with Rubicon itself, there was some kind of change in the, the structure of the wine over time. In yeah, terms of how powerful it was at the beginning. Well, I, you know, I think well, it came from uh, an era, uh, the other era that we, you know, the classic era under Chelichev and all the people he trained. You know, when they were picking, just you know, I have to say, in that era, it was a textbook idea. You pick at certain bricks. It doesn't matter what the harvest conditions. It doesn't matter if it was a, uh, you know, if the fruit doesn't really look ripe or taste ripe. But if it's the right bricks, you're going to pick it because it's probably ripe, and um, that. Is in California, it's a very, it's not a classic situation because of the sunlight, cloud cover, heat accumulation uh, equation. They're not in balance. They're, you know, there's more heat usually than there is sunlight. That's the thing people understand about the best growing regions of California. They happen to have fog or they happen to have cloud cover in the mornings and again in late in the afternoons in summer. And so their daylight hours are actually cut short. And they also are shorter to begin with because you're closer to the equator than you are, let's say, in Champaign or Oregon or Washington. And and even though it's only it's like a 600, 800, 700 mile difference from Napa to or, to Willamette Valley, 
it's still enough that it makes enough an hour, almost an hour difference in daylight on each end of a day. So when you get to, we're at the 45th parallel in Oregon. My vineyard is just slightly north of the 45th parallel, which is halfway between the North Pole and the equator. And that's like an optimum area. If you look at the Northern and Southern hemisphere, you have optimal sunlight and optimal heat. In Oregon, you have like the best, you have these long uh, summer days and you have short winter days, you know? So you have great growing season. You have a lot of light accumulation. There's no fog. There may be some cloudy days because of rain, but it's usually blow, you know, it goes away. And then you have sun starting at like 5.30 in the morning and you have, you know, sundown going like at 10 at night and, or even later in, you know, midsummer. So you have long, long daylight hours in midsummer. And in that growing season, you're getting a lot of exposure to sunlight that helps for the development of phenolics and flavor in a wine without the accumulation of sugar. But depending on the season in, in coastal zones in California, you can have way too much cloud cover in summer so that you never get their phenolic development is curtailed, even though the heat may rise enough for sugar accumulation. And you may have enough sunlight for photosynthesis. You still may not have enough sunlight to really develop the flavors. That's, I think, why people start picking later and later. And they were more sensitive to it. I think when you get to when you wait so long that you're at 27 bricks, you're probably overdoing it, in my opinion. But a lot of good wines have been made that way. They're still pretty powerful, but that's the style people like. Uh, I think on the other end, when you make the wines too lean and, and too light, it's still it's not really the best you could do. It's definitely safe, and it's definitely a classic kind of a style. And in addition to that, you know, Andre also acidified his wines. He wanted to, so he'd, he'd pick relatively early and he still wanted to acidify. So the wines were very different. They did need time. When you make a wine that way, it's a wine you must age. When they're young, they're not that interesting. And I don't think people would buy them today if they're made that way today. But people back then expected to age the wines at least six, seven, eight years. The wines I was selling, the current wines I was selling in 1980. One and two were the 76 vintage uh, Beaulieu George Latour Private Reserve. What you're saying is that with the uh, Nibam Coppola, there was a change from saying like, this is the recipe every year to saying that we're going to have a little bit more flexibility year to year. Yeah. He went to a winemaking style that was, was more by let's look at the grapes, let's taste the grapes, let's study the composition of the, you know, the phenolics. How does it taste? They tasted the grapes something that the old timers really in America didn't really do. They just had, okay, it's 23, go and pick. It was a vineyard manager was told when it reaches that bricks, you pick. And today, you know, they taste grapes. There may have been some farmers who did that. I'm not sure, small producers, but the, but the major brands and most of the farmers, they, they didn't have wine in their culture. They were prune farmers who decided, well, grapes may be a good crop too. And they looked at the books and were, did what they were told. They didn't even have any connection to the wine, most of them. So it was the winemaking, the guy said, okay, pick, and then he, they picked and they sent it. Today, you know, the, it's more estate-driven. It's more like the wineries want to have control of their fruit sources and they want to know how each vineyard is doing before they pick it. And so I think they're getting more refinement. And, you know, the idea that you have to have these very, very ripe wines is changing and it's going back. But it's a much more informed process all around from the farming to the winemaking. What was your own progression there in terms of working at the marketing and then running Nibam Coppola? I mean, how did you feel that your own skill set developed? 
Well, I learned a lot about sales and marketing. You know, at Coppola, I worked with uh, Kathleen Talbert. Uh, Kathleen Talbert is a New York publicist who helped to create Illy Cafe and Riedel Glass. And she be and she was actually involved with Food and Wines of France when I was competing for the best sommelier in the world. And that's how I first got to know her. She was in charge of it. And then um, when by the time I saw her again, uh, she was working as her own independent public relations firm. And she also represented Francis Ford Coppola. So I got to meet her when Francis came to the restaurant. He brought her a couple of times. And then then I had to work. I had to work directly with her when I was put in charge of the winery. Every every sales or campaign, everything had to be run through her, and she had to approve it. And she had to pick the you know the destinations, especially for New York, and who the journalists would be. And she was brilliant at it. So I learned a lot from her. I think you know having been involved with her like for twenty years almost from the time I was competing to when she was when I worked with her very closely at, at Coppola. You know, it taught me a lot about how much work goes into public relations and communications and that it's not just, oh, you send out a letter, but you have to understand, you have to control the circumstances so you know what's going to happen, you know, as much as you can. You know, you can't dictate what a person's going to write or say, but she taught me that there was a lot to it that, for example, refusing publicity. See, as a person from the restaurant industry, I'm going like, yeah, more publicity. <laughs> but she was saying, no, especially when you work with movie stars or someone who has that kind of exposure all the time and the danger of being overexposed, she, and someone who also doesn't want to be exposed you know, as a client, she managed it so brilliantly and with such a firm hand, I had to admire her. I mean, once we had the Times of London called me at the restaurant and said, we want to do an article on your restaurant and all these other projects of Francis Ford Copeland. All we want is an interview, 10 minutes with him at his home and a photograph. We're going to send a photographer from London to take his picture. And we're going to, we have a whole feature section really ready on him. And, and, and so, uh, I wrote a note to Kathleen and I said, can we do this? And she said, no, just right. No, without, you know, like 10 seconds later, it <laughs> came back. No. And then I said, you're kidding. It's the Times of London. It's like they're, they've already kind of started to write the article and it, it's gonna, it'll publicize us. And she says, Francis, uh, you know, Sophia Coppola is getting married. He wants, nothing, nothing, he wants his whole calendar cleared for the next six months uh, until her wedding. And I, and I go like, oh, and I'm going like, you're sure? This is just 10 minutes. And she said, you, you ask him. <laughs> so I wrote him a note and I got an answer back. I thought Kathleen Talbert was instructed to tell everyone I didn't want to do anything for the next six months. So I said, yes, Francis, I'm sorry. But, but that I have to respect, you know, because they know they're experienced enough and they're exposed enough uh, that they know what they have to do to manage it in a way that suits them as well as, and, and will be the kind of publicity they want. For all of us, other people, you know, like any publicity, we'll, we die for to help us publicize our, our current projects. Well, being Romanian, you probably didn't realize that no Sicilian can refuse a favor asked of him on his daughter's wedding day. You probably didn't put it, <laughs> yes. put it together right away, but it probably took, yeah, wow. I've seen that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that period was also kind of a, a go time for California Cab in a lot of ways. Like uh, I associate that with like a, the rise of California Cabernet to being like dominant, you know, the 90s. That was the 90s. I mean, it was, uh, I think it was the rise of the critic. You know, the really, it, it started in the 80s. Parker's career was based on 82 vintage. And, but in the 90s, there was a 
uh, combination of wealth accumulated in California due to the Silicon Valley industry. And there was also a, a, a rise in the idea that this is a local product and it reflects us as uh, people in the tech industry as well as people in San Francisco that this Napa uh, you know, made wine is really great and we should stand behind it and critics are loving it. And so they, they decided they would collect that just like they collected Bordeaux. And the rarer, the better, because that meant that they, those people who had the money could afford to buy these great wines. But frankly, the wines were starting off at very low prices. I, I think the first release of uh, Harlan was like around $70. It went up, it got 100 points, and the next year was, it wasn't much more, because 100-point score didn't matter that much back then. But then they got 100, another 100 points, or they got 99 one year and 100 in the next, and then, and then the, the spectator gave them another 100-point score and another magazine gave them another. So all of a sudden, everybody in the world wanted to try this wine, and they had less than 1,800 cases at the time. So, the, of course, the price went up uh, enormously. So do you think it was driven by tech money? Tech money, yeah, tech money. You know, in that era, two to four people, they could come in and spend $10,000 at lunch. And they would talk about how many, how wealthy they were, how many billions of dollars they just made. They were engineers or they were working for Apple or, you know, for uh, Intel and, uh, and some other new startup company that we don't even know about. And on paper, they were very wealthy. But then, unfortunately, at the end of that year, the big boom year, they had to pay tax capital gains on their accumulated wealth of the of the stocks that they owned, <laughs> and they didn't have the money. They had the paper, so they had to come up with the money. So all of a sudden, they weren't wealthy anymore. They were broke because they owed all this money on stock that they owned. And where did the money come from? How do you you'd have to sell stock? It, it was it was not a it was a conundrum. And then since they all had to sell stock, the stocks all tanked. That, that's sort of that's part of why the bust happened so quickly. It, w- it was because they need all needed to pay capital gains. I didn't realize that. Yeah, and they they were no longer that wealthy. So then we didn't see them for a while. But uh, that was part of it. I mean, some of them obviously had the money, but the people that were vested in the companies and put all their earnings. Some people had the options to put their earnings back into shares. Those people were hurt very badly, and those were a lot of the people who were buying a lot of these wines and feeling wealthy, and they could afford such luxuries, and it it, it kind of was a little premature. But uh, but and it, but that continued. I mean, that didn't abate. I mean, other people stepped in that you know gradually after a year or two, and and the prices kept going up and up. So you sort of had a return to Napa at a different era when you worked for Huneus as well. Well, yeah, I, I really only left, uh, I left uh, Coppola and I went to Oregon and I was still working in Napa. I, we, I ran Evening Land for a, a year and a half. I developed the national market and we st- stabilized it and got the pricing a little more stable. And uh, then it was clear to me that Oregon was working really well and the vineyard was, I mean, I was the one, you know, 10 years earlier I was consulting with Mark Tarlov and I recommended Oregon first. I said, Oregon, Willamette Valley is a great place. It's probably the best place in America, but it's unproven yet really, although there's some really good properties there. I think more could be done, especially if we got a Burgundy, someone like Dominique that I knew was interested in more in Oregon than he was in California. He had gone to the IPNC. And I said, that would be a great place. And I said, try to get a place, if you're going to buy something up there, try to get someplace near Seven Springs Vineyard. Because that hill between Christum and Witness Tree and, and, and Seven Springs, 
those those sites seem right from the beginning to make great wine, and they seem to have the right structure. And whenever I do a, bl- a tasting of a bunch of Oregon wines and I find out where they're from, I always put the Eole Amity Hills ahead of everything else. So I, that's where you should look. And he um, called me, you know, like uh, six months later or something. On a, I was driving, and he, I pick up the phone, you know, on my uh, handless thing, and I pick up the phone, and I'm talking to him, and he says, I'm here in Oregon with Dominique Lafon, and we're standing in Seven Springs Vineyard, and I can get a 35-year lease on this. And I go like, really? Seven Springs? I go, well, did you ch- have it checked out for disease? You know, because I said, if it, if some of it's on own route, it could have phylloxera, and you will have to replant it. You know, check that out. He said, oh, the whole lease is less than a condo in uh, upper Manhattan, upper east side Manhattan. And I go like, that's not the point. You have to farm it. You know, you, you know it's not what it costs going in. It's what it's going to cost uh, to produce. And they, I said, why, why did you get it? Why did no one else bid as high as you? And so I, I said, check it out. So the next time I talked to him a few days later, I, he said he got the lease. He signed the lease, and I go like, "Did you have it checked?" No, no, it's you know it'll be okay. And I go like, "Okay." So that was that's an ongoing issue, I think, for Seven Springs. But the site is great, and uh, when I was there, and we as I was running it by this time, that was many years later that I started running it. I stood in the vineyard of Seven Springs and looked across the road at this farm that was Christmas trees and a little bit of second growth forest and cherry trees and plums and wheat, and it was all derelict. It was all overgrown, and what hadn't been maintained. I said, maybe they want to sell. Maybe the farmer who owns this wants to sell. They're obviously not caring for it right now as, as closely as they obviously used to. And so I was tasked with talking with them and the negotiation went on for a couple of years. But at the end, I was able to, to negotiate a, a, an agreement. But then when I left, uh, it was ready to sign when I left Eveningland, but they never signed it. So uh, other people kept coming. Now that they knew people knew it was for sale, they tried again because people have been trying for 40 years to get this property. They all came in, but they they didn't. It was hard for them to deal with the owners. And so I I call. I just happened to call them back and say, "What happened?" Because I know you didn't sell it to Emilian. They said, "Oh, we have some bids on it, but uh, you know, other people wanted to buy it, but they but we want to keep the water rights, and that's a big problem for most people." And I go like, "Well, not for me. I'm dry farming." He said, well, we, yeah, we also like you. If you would just, uh, if you can pay the price, then it's yours. You know, I go like, okay. <laughs> so I, I said, yes. And I tried to figure out how to get the money together. And basically I, I cashed in everything I had and, and uh, put it in just to buy it. And I'm going like, I don't know how I'm going to develop it. Maybe I'll have to lease it out to someone who can develop it. And then my, my friend, uh, David Honig came in and said, he's an attorney and he looked at the contract and everything. And he said, well, I think I, you know, I know a way that you can finance this. And he, he put in his money, he, you know, equivalent to mine. And uh, we were able to plant it and develop it all 66 acres that we did in that first year. But uh, you did work for Huneus at one point. Yeah. When I went back from Eveningland, I, I went to Chicago to work for Charlie Trottergan and closed down that restaurant. I was there to help uh, dissolve the wine cellar, seal it off as best we could during the, uh, while the restaurant was still open for the next six months to eight months, and then was left would go to auction primarily. And so I arranged for all that with the sommelier Ryan Stettens at the time. Uh, and that year, that was 12, that was the year that I left Eveningland. And then uh, and in the same year, I was approached by Augustin Nunez, and he said, well, when you're done with that, 
uh, we'd like you to work with us. I've known the family for many years. I knew them from the restaurant trade. They did the sommelier summits in the 90s. We went to Chile together. We did all these things for sommeliers and... Uh, and they financed them. I mean, they they and they were very generous because they took some to other people's estates, and they they put it all together. They spent a lot of time and effort to do it, just to get sommeliers interested in California or in Chile. You know, that one trip to Chile, and I, and I appreciated that that they respected the sommelier and they respected the restaurant industry so much that they put a lot that much effort into it. So when they approached me, and I I. I was really uh, eager to work for them. I liked the wines. I knew the estate, and I'd been there. I walked the property with Valeria Huneus, uh before it was even planted. So I really felt close to that place. I was very uh, pleased to also represent them in an era when Charles Thomas was the winemaker. So there were a lot of things going on there too with the winemaking. You know, he had concrete eggs for the white, and he had he had these uh, this optical sorter from Pelanc, which is a very complex computer-driven, laser-driven grape sorting machine. And I learned that you know those machines are great in a bad year, and they're kind of useless in other years for Cabernet, and that they probably wouldn't work at all for Pinot. I learned that too. Uh, and so uh, you know we never bought one, but they but I learned the value of good sorting that even goes beyond what the human you know, eye and mind can do in in a quick situation like harvest when you're sorting fruit. What was Augustine Hunes's style? I mean, what was, I've never met him. Well, Augustine Sr. is a very kind and noble patrician, but he's very intelligent and very intellectually oriented. So he likes to hear reasonable arguments. He doesn't want to, it's not passion. He has a passion for wine. He and his wife, his wife is a brilliant viticulturalist, a brilliant microbiologist. She is just a, she's a fantastic person. And she was the one who thought up of biodynamic farming all on her own, basically without, she didn't know about biodynamic farming, but she came up with ideas for farming that were parallel to biodynamic farming and she, to the point that she had an insectarium planned for the middle of the vineyard to draw native insects from the 1840s back to the property because she felt that the grassland insects that would populate these plants would drive away the riparian insects into the forests and rivers beds and out, keep them out of the vineyards because they're territorial. And so she felt that's better than applying insecticide. And I go like... That was like one of the craziest ideas I had heard of at the time in the late 80s or you know early 90s. I was like blown away by the idea. And I go, can that really work? And I was hoping it would. And she also had other ideas about farming, how she would have her own cattle and sheep and they would create manure and they'd have their own compost because if they, if they use the compost from their own animals, that, that those bacteria that the, the animals ingested through the grasses and the fungi would be returned again to the same vineyard sites and that you'd keep the indigenous populations of fungi and bacteria alive. And, you know, no other farmer that I know of in Napa really thought that way then. You know, shortly thereafter, people started thinking, it became more popular to think about biodynamic, but that was maybe 10 years later. Uh, when she was doing this, you know, organic was still kind of a, a thing that people were considering. But organic is a very big, there's a very big difference from organic, which is an absence of systemic chemicals, artificial chemicals to, to control insects and fungi versus what her idea was, which is something that's more akin to biodynamic or permaculture ideas where you keep a whole cycle of life intact in the site. And you're not introducing foreign elements. 
whether they're chemical or other bacteria or fungi. So you keep every the biosphere there intact. And, and that was brilliant. And she came up with that as a biochemist and as a, and as, as a person who had been responsible for vineyards in Monterey. She helped to develop Monterey County with her husband. They did that when they started off when they had very little money to acquire capital. They contracted out with a number of wineries to make inexpensive white wines for them. And they did so very successfully, So enough so that they had enough money to buy better wineries later on, like Concanon. And then they helped Souverain. And out of that, they got the job with uh, the uh, Duncan family and the and the, uh, uh, the the another family from Germany who combined owned what became Silver Oak and Franciscan, and he came up with the idea. There was a problem in the company, so I'm not sure what the nature of that problem was. But he wound up splitting them and and, and creating two companies instead of one that was having issues of some sort. And uh, so that was, he's just a brilliant businessman because he's very clear-headed, logical, and he's very, he's very uh, calm about it. You know, he, he, he just uh, exudes calm, a calm exterior. And it's very, it's very, people who work for him love him. Uh, his son is, is a brilliant businessman, and is, but he's, he's more of the hard-driven person who wants to prove himself, because I think because his father was so successful. But he, he has done, you know, he's probably surpassed his father in terms of the, what he's done in, in, in business, buying first and then developing the prisoner wine company and, and working with flowers. He's building up flowers. He has Faust. Faust, he's going to develop Faust. So those were all his ideas. The father and, and Valeria were, were content with a, a traditional estate model. That's something that's more akin to me. I, I fashion my career a lot on what Augustine has done in his career be, and Valeria because I like their ideas and I like the way they are probably more, a little more like the sun than I am like they are. I'm a little more like uh, more aggressive sometimes than they are, but uh, I wish I could be more like them in some ways. What did you pick up about Quintessa when you were working for them? Well, it's a, it's a great vineyard site and it shows that it was a unique site and it, it shows that there's a lot of terroir, you know, expression anywhere that has, has very distinctive soils and distinctive exposure and drainage. And the, their soils are, are rhyolitic uh, volcanic ash that has been compressed, but it absorbs water like limestone. And so you see low vine stress. So you realize that a lot of the great elements of limestone have to do with the water retention qualities rather than it being calcium. But you, I have to assume that calcium also has an effect because you see in these sites that have very basic soils, you tend to see acid wines, whereas you see in the, in the rhyolitic soils, which are more uh, neutral, you see wines that are a little less acidic. But, you know, I, whether that's true or not, you know, I don't know. It's Maybe it's the pick dates. There are a lot of other things in the equation. But you can see that the stress and the evolution of flavors in those two soils are very even and very satisfying because they have low water stress even in a drought year because the soil retains the moisture and the both rocks are friable and the roots can penetrate into the rocks and live in the rock and suck water out as they need it from limestone or from the rhyolitic ash. They're actually called volcanic tufts. It's not tufa. It's not like tufa can mean two kinds of soils. It can mean a volcanic tuff, which is ash that's welded together or loosely uh, welded together. It can also mean uh, a, 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 another kind of a soil, which is a, a, a limestone. It, it's a, I think it's because of the pockets of air. I think that's the thing that people, oh, this is tough, this is tough. But they have two different origins. Because it's uh, super confusing, that, yes. that terminology. It is, yes. 
So in terms of Oregon, uh, what did you pick up when you were working with Eveningland and Dominique and kind of that consulting role? Well, that was that was another eye opener. You know, first of all, I, I was the one who suggested to Mark, uh, along with Daniel. I mean, we both we, he knew us both uh, that Dominique would be good because he worked in America. My wedding wine was made by him at J.W. Morris. I didn't know that until we worked together in Oregon. But I bought this uh, table wine. It was like J.W. Morris Private Reserve White and Red. And they were very cheap, and I could afford them for my wedding. And but they were delicious. And he made the white. He probably helped to helped to make the red too, but he was but the owner of J.W. Morris. He made mainly port. It was a port house, but he wanted to make dry wines because he couldn't sell in the port. And when Dominique came to work as an apprentice in the United States, he he met him and he hired him to do the white wines. And I chose that for the primary wine for my wedding. And it was so funny. We we're driving down to the vineyard, and it was uh, he he revealed that to me. When, uh, he said, he, you know, we're talking about his history. I was going to interview him for a little video for the website that we had. Those and, things never work out, the <laughs> veterinary interviews. Well, uh, my interviews probably don't work out. Yours would. I, so we were, I was getting some background, and, he, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember you worked in California. You were selling barrels. And he said, no, I also made wine. And I said, well, where? Oh, no, a little winery no one's ever heard of. They mainly make port. And I go like, what was the name? And he, he said, J.W. Morris. And I go like, oh, my God, you know, I have a bottle left. I'll, so I, I went home. When I went home, like, three days later, I sent him a photo of the label. It, it has a prominent place in my cellar. It's, I wouldn't drink it anymore. It looks brown inside, but it's, uh, but it's a 1981, uh, or, uh, you know, J.W. Morris white. Anyway, so when we were when we were in Oregon, I I learned from him what you can do in the new world. I wanted to see what he would do, and I knew he worked in California, which is why I thought he would be appropriate. And he liked Oregon, so I knew he would want to work maybe in in Oregon. The result of the first year already, which we didn't have much, you know, when when I tasted it, was amazing. Then 2007 vintage of Chardonnay was brilliant, and I, at that time, I don't think there was anything else like it in Oregon. It was picked much differently, you know, very much earlier than anyone else. They all thought he was crazy back then. They still think we're a little crazy, but they, but especially then no one was near where we were in terms of pick date. And then the treatment of the wine and that, and it was also misunderstood a little by the critics when it first came out. They always, and they still, I think still people prefer the La Source from his era over the Sumum. But the Sumum 2007 now, I mean, this is what is hard to believe for most people who drink American Chardonnay. The Sumum now is almost mature. It's getting there. So this is, we're talking about 10 years, almost 10 years later, it's maturing slowly and beautifully. So that is probably beyond expectations or beyond what people would want to age a white wine like that for, but it shows you that he was right in terms of the structure and the depth of flavor of that wine. That wine was the ageable one, and it was probably the more complex one, but it needed to develop. Whereas the La Source is a little softer, it's a little fleshier, there's a little more balance. I think it's more balance between fruit and mineral. And so as a result, people appreciate it at a younger age. And that's the wine that always got higher scores for that reason, because people are scoring a wine or judging a wine based on when it's released rather than on its future potential. But I was I understood immediately what he was doing, and I agreed that that is the better wine. I, I go from a marketing point of view, it's going to be tough because this will be the preferred child of all. And the Pinots were really good too, and they were very different than anything coming out of Oregon at that time. 
So especially Seven Springs Vineyard created some of the greatest wines before Dominique even from different styles, whether it was Mark Vlasak or, you know, there were almost 27 wineries I counted that had made a wine from Seven Springs Vineyard over the year. The first one I had was Adelsheim in the 80s, early in the mid 80s. I had a wine from David Adelsheim and I was so impressed by it. I called him on the phone and said, David, this is the best wine you've ever made. When did you get this vineyard? It's a new vineyard for you. And there was a silent pause. And he goes, it, it's not my vineyard. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I just bought some fruit from it, but it, I, I plan to buy more fruit from it, you know. But, but it was obviously painful because I said, this is the best wine. It wasn't his own source. It wasn't his own vineyard. But I really, I just, again, I have this natural affinity for what they do. And even when the vines were only three or four years old, they were making great wine. And that's something that we see now on the on the replantation of Seven Springs, we bought fruit from Raj in 2015, and that fruit has turned out beautifully. I mean, it's, it's only like the third or second or third crop from that vineyard that was replanted, that part of the vineyard. You spoke about how Dominique's wines in Burgundy are different than his dad's wines. How would you say that Dominique's wines have evolved in terms of what was going on in Burgundy? Because I feel like there's been a little evolution on his whites there and maybe the reds too. And then vis-a-vis Evening Land to, to now Lingua Franca where he's working with you, what have you seen? I mean, has it been somewhat straightforward or has there been a bit of an evolution there? The reason I love working with Dominique and the reason I knew he would be good for Oregon was that He's a very open-minded person who thinks a lot. He, he's not the kind of person who just does whatever. He thinks very fundamentally about everything he does, every aspect of everything he does. And, he, and so he also is open to experiment. He was very, very you know, committed to a Jaillet philosophy because he felt a great deal of kinship with Henri Jaillet, and he loved the wines Henri Jaillet made. And then also in Volnay, those wines naturally are very good in that technique with de-stemmed fruit. They're, they come out elegant, silky. Those are the kind of wines he likes to make. Fresh, elegant, silky, you know, and beautiful. Very pretty. He loves perfume. He loves elegance. He loves silk. That, that, those are the kind of wines that that style can make. And that, it, it's something for him, a change. It was a big change in Evening Land. He could not accept whole cluster at all. He forbade it. It was a mandate, no whole cluster. And when Isabel or another person there tried to suggest that he do at least a little bit whole cluster because it seems like it may be a good thing to experiment with. He said, if you do that, you can do it, but it can't have my name on it. It, has, it can't be the regular lineup. You can't put it in with like a, a silver or a gold or any of the regular wines. It has to have a totally different name and identity. So then we they came up, you know, Mark came up with uh, Red Queen and whatever else to separate it from the rest of the, of the portfolio. And he could accept it that way as long as people knew he was not whole cluster. He was destemmed. And it was pretty much that way to the end uh, of his tenure there. But when he came over to us, you know, I hired Tomas Saab, who came with him kind of. When Dominique joined me, Tomas came very shortly thereafter. He wanted to be with his mentor and, you know... You know, it's like the closest relationship I've seen Dominique have with anyone he's worked with. He's on Skype with him, uh, like during harvest, he's on Skype with him, like for an hour or two every morning. They go over all the all the uh, the grape samples analysis. They go over what they should do that day, what the pick is like, what the weather's like. 
you know, you know every every aspect of the winemaking. They go through it thoroughly, and they and he it's Dominique's end of the day. He's worked a full day already in Burgundy. It's eight o'clock or later in Burgundy, and he's on the Skype with Thomas Sav every morning, and it's amazing. And I've never seen him work that closely. He comes frequently. He travels with us. Uh, he's very engaged. So I think what in that in that relationship, he's accepted whole cluster. So he trusts Thomas enough that if Thomas says, "I think this." block should be whole cluster. He, he says, go, okay, if you think that's the right thing, do it. And in fact, the nice thing also to accelerate this a little bit was last, in the middle of last harvest in 15, you know, one morning he gets a Skype from Dominique and Dominique says, my destemmer is broken. It's not working right. What do I do? I don't know how to do whole cluster. <laughs> now he has it. He had to do whole cluster, right? So uh, they talked it over and, and they determined that Dominique should call Jeremy Sess and ask for <laughs> Right, right, yeah, yeah. So he had he called Jeremy to say, okay, how do you do this whole cluster thing? <laughs> so in 15, you'll see some Lafon red wines that have whole cluster. <laughs> but in terms of the whites, because, you know, tasting the 15 Sisters Chardonnay from, from Lingua Franca, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, as you said, dry and has some acid. And uh, it's wine I was really drawn to, kind of a, a salivating wine. But if mm-hmm. I think back to the Complafon Merceaux of uh, the 90s, you know, they tend to have batonage and be a little bit in a richer style. So mm-hmm. has there been evolution there too? Or? Yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, you know, the the situation with the, with the wines oxidizing has, you know, affected everybody's mentality about how the wine should be made. And they backed off of the richness and the ripeness and the easy drinking young. At that time, people thought, oh, they, if we do a little of this and that, the wines will um, be more uh, approachable young and they'll get better scores and people, and, and but they'll also age. And I don't think Dominique ever did a lot of batonage. I never, whenever I talked to him, it was never really, batonage was a technique they used once or twice in a vintage, it's not like every day. It's not something they would beat the wine up for. There should have been no really significant oxygen uptake because of the amount of botanage they did, which was so nominal. Unlike a lot of American producers or other producers that, you know, were trying to do botanage every week or, you know, even more frequently and at, at certain points in the fermentation and the post-fermentation process. And you're going like, uh, you know, he knew that would affect the wine. So he was never that way. The Primox, I don't think, is... Uh, is a result of anything in particular like that for him. It's possible there are a lot of things that were going on in the vineyard. I think I don't think anyone's really thoroughly explained why some vineyards, some producers get it and others don't. Uh, and I don't think it's explained by the cork. They're all gone now to Diam and they also because of Primox, and not just because of the cork taint, which they don't want, and it's a nuisance to do a, cor- a thorough cork quality control test for every bottle you bottle. So diameter, a very simple solution to that. But it is also, they think I think they believe it will provide a better seal than cork and prevent uh, Primox. Uh, you know, so that's part of what they're thinking, and also because of that, they also are doing ma- taking steps to make sure their wine is reductive when it goes in bottle. So they, this is something everybody's doing everywhere now that follows Burgundy. They want to put their wines with lees in tanks for four months or more, and they get quite reductive, and then they bottle them, and then they feel that'll protect them against oxidation. It may also, I mean, your tolerance for it and how it's done, you know, it can be done with a good touch the way Dominique does it, or it can be done with a heavy touch, and then you wind up with cabbage and other sulfur uh, compounds that are not so pleasant in, in your wine and mercaptans. So, you know, you have to... You want to make sure that uh, 
it's done right. And he's always done the wine right. And I think it's been a big source of uh, agony for a lot of producers, not just for Dominique, that their wines, why did their wines all of a sudden, when they didn't really do that much different in, you know, uh, why did they go bad? And then they started playing around with the sulfur levels to get them up again. That was maybe one thing. The sulfur levels went down uh, because that was they realized the wines would be prettier. And now they're back up to a more standard level the way they were or even higher. And then you add to that the, the tank aging. So I, th- and I think people like that. When you look at Rouleau or, or La Faune, people prefer that to having it oxidized for sure. And I think it's a style that people now, aficionados, have come to appreciate and prefer. How do you think Dominique views the, the Oregon wines versus the Burgundy wines? Or is it more of a continuum than that? Is it not a versus thing? Is, is it? I don't think it's a versus. I mean, that's why I hired uh, you know, Thomas, and that's why I thought it'd be interesting to have a Burgundy winemaker working in the new world. And it'll be great to see so many coming to Oregon. I think Etienne de Monti is going to go to Santa Rita, but uh, in Oregon, we have a, a huge influx of interest from Burgundy. And I think it'll be great for Oregon to see that interest because it's not they're not going to make Burgundy in Oregon. They're not, Oregon will not create another Moussigny or another Bon Mar. It won't create a Mont Rocher. It'll create its own thing. I hope our Mon Rocher will be Bunker Hill. It won't taste like Mon Rocher, but it'll be Bunker Hill, just the way Corton isn't Mon Rocher. You know, so it's it'll be unique because it, if you do the wine right, it's going to respect the site it's from. And that's what I love about Dominique. That's what I love about the Burgundy mentality. It's not about your style. It's about what does the place tell me and how do I translate what the place gives me into the finished wine? And Thomas is great at that. Thomas, you know, he tastes the grapes, he walks the vineyards, he's very vineyard oriented, and he, he, uh, you know, it's just they're they're focused on that in a way that I don't think people expected that worked with us. Uh, they take it kind of lightly. Oh, we're doing a good method, you know, we're farming, you know, it's okay, and and he's going, no, it's not okay. This and this is not exactly right, and the and the reason it won't work is because, and he can give all the reasons, and it's very clear. Uh, you know, the way it's trained isn't right. And then the, then you get pockets of breeze and pockets where air is trapped and you can get mildew in those sites and you want the flow to keep everything aerated. And he, he has very, very clear ideas of what's going to work and how to keep a vineyard healthy for a long time. I believe in permaculture and having a big cycle of life like Valeria Huneus practiced. I'll probably have more of it because I'll have 40 acres of farm, 35 to 40 acres of farm. So what do you see as the challenges that are maybe a different set of challenges, specifically in terms of farming in Oregon, than you would have found if you were in Burgundy with Dominique? Oh, uh, th- th- I mean, you know, talk about cha- lack of challenges. I mean, that the thing about Oregon is it's so beautiful for farming uh, P- Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and it's so... Uh, friendly because you know we have if you look at like there's a book on Oregon winemaking it's like the handbook of Oregon winemaking it goes through vineyard practices and everything and early on there's a thing about the climate of, of Burgundy and the climate of Oregon and Willamette mid Willamette Valley and what's interesting is that the rainfall the average annual rainfall is about the same there's a little slightly more in Oregon the average amount of sunlight per day in summer is exact you know pretty much exactly the same we're a little bit uh, a little bit less than in Burgundy, not much, because we're at the 45th parallel. Burgundy's like we're closer, to like 46 or something. So we're not talking about a huge, huge difference, but it's like a little more uh, north, slightly. So the daylight, the the heat is the next thing, and the heat is 
is a little bit, it's about the same. You know, we have hot days, but they can have hot days. So I think when people come for the IPNC, it's almost always in the hottest part of summer. And, and also, of course, as in Burgundy, the temperatures are also rising. I think the thing that's different in summer and what really affects the problems that they have in Burgundy versus what we have is that they have a lot more hail. They have a lot more frost. They have a lot more rainfall in summer, so they have to spray a lot more. We have so we have rainfall. We have more rainfall than they do in Burgundy, but we have less in summer than we do the rest of the year. So it's a dry summer and a wet rest of the year. And so problems in spring from mildew and molds is big. But after spring, when you're when you get into late June, July, August, you know you'll have rain. You can start having a little rain in August, but it's not going to be so significant that you have to keep always worrying about it. You know, and it's too late to do a lot of treatments anyway. But spring is the big time, and they have problems in Burgundy from you know April to Ju- almost to July. You know, so they're always spraying, and as we dry out more and more as you get through the summer. And the other nice thing about our soils is that, uh, like Burgundy, we retain water. There's, you know, people don't know, you know, they, they hear about limestone and marl. Well, marl is a decomposed clay out of limestone, so it holds water. So there's some clay-like soils there for great vineyards, you know. And we have a clay-like soil, too. We have a clay, based on volcanic rocks, clay, gravel, and rock, and it's Jory and Nikaya versus limestone marls of various sorts and limestone. Of course, some of the better white sites are more pure limestone and less nutrient-rich. And the red wine, the favored red wine ones are kind of in the sweet spot between stony and too heavy, but they but they also have some clays and, and gravel as well. So clays, gravel, sand, and we have the same thing, but we have it from decomposed volcanic rock as opposed to marine sediments. So your first vintage for Lingua Franca was 15, and what did you see through the growing season of that year? The, oh, that was a drought year. It was hot, dry. I'm dry farming my vineyard, so I was worried all summer that I, w- I would have damage or death, you know, vine death. And I was always alerted to the, when there was going to be a temperature close to 100 degrees or maybe in excess of 100, and I was worried because my vines were one and two years old, and I go like, eh, what's going to happen? That could be tough. So... We kept checking the soil, and and it had water. You know, it was moist. It was dry. It hadn't rained for a while. Everyone was complaining about how dry it was. But you go down to where the roots were, and there was water. And I never irrigated them, so the roots went down. They didn't, like, go across, or they weren't superficial. And the vines did okay. There was water, and it didn't depend on surface water. It had the deep roots found the sources. So if you were to give me a kind of capsule summary of Oregon winemaking, specifically for Pinot and Chardonnay, what has come out of what and where we're going, uh, how would you kind of sum that up in a more brief fashion? Well, I think, you know, the first winemakers uh, that came up, mo- most of them were from, had been trained in California. They were escapees. The famous stories of David Lett coming up and saying, this is a great place and planting Pinot in a place that no one ever thought of planting a red wine like that. You, you know, David Adelsheim and Dick Ponzi, and before that you had uh, Summers and you had uh, Charles Curry. So these people were experimenting with different varietals, but they realized that but there was a lot of Riesling. People probably don't have the memory of that, but Hillcrest was one of the oldest wineries in Oregon. That They had a great Riesling. Charles Curry had a great Riesling. Summers had a great Riesling. They all made some Riesling. The only one that really stuck to it for the long run was Elk Cove. They continued to make great Riesling. 
the other people gave up because there's a lot of competition from Chateau Saint-Michel in Washington, which has huge acres of Riesling and they could pump it out and it was good. Uh, and then you have German Riesling, which isn't that expensive on the lower end. And it's also pretty good. So you have competition from both ends. It didn't, they didn't make a niche for themselves in Riesling. And then the red wine started to take off. And I think the big kicker was when uh, David Lett won this, the award for like Gairi South Block, Pinot Noir. That was like the big, big thing. And um, it was pretty, pretty amazing to have that kind of recognition. I was in Seattle still, and it was like everybody in the Northwest is going, wow, you know, we've hit it, you know, hit the big time. But, you know, so there was a certain style and it came out of being schooled in California and it was it was informed by Burgundy. I think everybody in Oregon was a little independent of California. They came from there, maybe, or they were schooled there, but they were independent from it. And they looked to France, maybe, as a better role model for making Pinot, always from the beginning. But it evolved, you know, again, it's market. Uh, it's what do you, you know, the local winemaking talent, where do the people go to school? They go to school in Corvallis, or they go to school at Chemeketa. They know American wines. They may drink a lot of California wines, or they may not even drink wine at all, but they have a farm and they decide that they're going to make wine because it may be more profitable. So there's a whole, you know, a lot of other people came after those pioneers that got into it that had a, not the same mentality, but were, they were more naive in some ways. They just wanted to do something good and they didn't know exactly what that meant and it evolved and the style, the local style evolved. And I think a lot of the wines are great. I mean, there's still you know, those founders and there's some great newcomers, Antica Terra. When someone like Cameron or Steve Dorner came and, you know, those wines were really great and they were maybe unsung, but they had enough of a local market. It didn't matter. There wasn't a lot of competition. And then you have Druan. When Druan came, that was a big push. But inst- her, her thing was instead of adopting Burgundy winemaking philosophy to the new world, they, I think they decided they would fit in more. So over time, you see these styles evolve. And I think what happened was by the time Dominique came, people were already looking at making wines a little differently. I think the big heavy wine, you see people now that make those wines dialing back. I think the problem for Chardonnay, this gets me into the Chardonnay. Uh, Chardonnay started off with a 108, which is a California dominant late ripening Chardonnay clone. And it's not appropriate for Oregon where you need a shorter window. So the earlier ripening clones from Burgundy are better, like 76 or 96. There, there are others. We, we prefer 76. I also like 543. 543 apparently in 20 years have, will have problems, Dominique tells me, because he's seen it in Burgundy. They, the yields go way down, he said. And I go like, as long as the wine is great, the yields can go down. <laughs> but he, he goes, yeah, it's good. He, he admits it's good. He likes them a lot. But then he says the yields get ridiculous and they get too ripe for him. They get too ripe too quickly. But after 20 years, so I'll worry about that. And, you know, well, in our next interview, <laughs> I'll worry about that. Anyway, but the, the fact is Chardonnay had this break because it was so inappropriate, especially when they were young. Some vineyards now that are 25, 30 years old, you know, they're more balanced. They, they needed that long in Oregon to kind of adapt and now they're okay. They produce okay Chardonnay. And also maybe because of climate change, the 108 is actually okay now. But the 76 is, is great. And people now, after so many years, are going back to Chardonnay after an interregnum of Pinot Gris. Pinot Gris was a fallback. Chardonnay didn't work. It was a disaster because 108 had so much malic when it when they picked it finally that when it went through malolactic, it was just soapy. It was like, the mouthfeel was like jello. It was like too, you know, flabby because it had too much lactic. But 
the new clones that are early arriving, they they have a good balance between Malik and uh, Tartaric, and they they tend to make crisp, fresh wines. And if they go through Mallow, it's it's okay. They still are crisp and fresh. They may just have a rounder, a rounder mouth, slightly rounder mouthfeel, like they would in Burgundy. And that's what's made it more popular. And I think people are now doing that. They're going and they're dialing back the pick dates, they're dialing back the bricks, and they're making wines that are truly more transparent to the place they're from rather than being dominated by oak or by some malolactic flavors. Larry Stone's career has matured, but he's retained the freshness that he had at the beginning. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Larry Stone is a founder and also the CEO of Lingua Franca, the winery in Oregon, and he is the owner of LS Vineyards. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.